Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am really excited, actually, as always, to be talking to the brilliant minds in science and in functional medicine and systems medicine and uh, longevity science. And um, today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Nicola Conlon and Nicola is a molecular bio biologist by training. She's specializing in the study of aging as a biologically complex disorder. Uh, after years focused on the early stage drug discovery with a leading biotech firm, Dr. Nicola founded Nuchito Laboratories to deliver disruptive innovation in the field of anti-aging, rejuvenation, and health span, driven by her belief that cutting edge science should not lie hidden. Go, Nicola. Uh, Dr. Nicola is on a mission to democratize science and has a skill for translating and presenting advanced scientific science in a way that helps to educate and support people to take care of themselves to take control of their health. Along with other leading science scientists at Nichito, uh, Dr. Nicola has identified the right combination of targets to restore cellular NAD production back to youthful levels, leading to the development of a second generation NAD booster called Nichito Time Plus. Dr. Nicola, welcome to New Frontiers. Hello, thank you so much for having me, Cara. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today. So. I'm excited because you're bringing really a great scientific background to um, longevity science, um, to the natural products industry, to um, you know continuing researching natural products and 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 looking at things that are really important to us here in sort of functional longevity, if you will. But um, you're you're you are are. Uh, bringing together many, many different areas that I'm particularly enthusiastic about. And, and, and you've launched this extraordinary um, NAD booster product that we're going to speak about today in careful detail. So I, you know, you're just perfect for me for, to, to join me on my podcast. And um, I just, I want to get into understanding you, your background, your company, you know, kind of you know, maybe a little more detail, a little more blowout of, of what brought you here. So let's start with like a big overview picture and then we'll move into the nitty gritty. Yeah, of course. So, so I'm, I'm not a, a medic. I am a scientist um, and my sort of area of speciality is the science behind why we age, but at a cellular level. So obviously everything that we're experiencing in terms of aging is really starting deep with inside ourselves, in our cells and all the pathways and different compartments within there, although we tend to recognize aging on the outside. So my sort of background is to be really understanding what is going wrong at the cellular level to cause what we recognize as aging. And I've been really fortunate to have a quite an interesting um, background in that I actually um, worked in drug development, but I was developing drugs to slow cellular aging. Now, to, to the average person, when you say you're developing drugs to slow aging, they're like, what? <laughs> you know, that's crazy. You can't do that. Um, but, you know, it's a huge area now um, within drug development, because as you and I both know, age is your biggest risk factor for all of the major diseases 
that drugs companies are trying to treat. <laughs> um, you know, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, everything. Your biggest risk yeah. factor is your age. So the idea is, is there a way that we can slow aging at, at a cellular level? And if we can, will that have an impact on actually reducing our risk of chronic disease, age-related chronic disease? And the idea is that we would be looking to extend our period of healthy lifespan, so extend our health span, so that we're not getting chronic age-related diseases as we get older. So I was fortunate enough to sort of enter that world as it was just beginning um, within the world of pharma. Um, so this was back in around 2013, 2014. Um, and it was a really interesting time because I spent a lot of time really understanding the biology at a cellular level behind aging, what were the best things to target, meeting all the key players within the aging and the longevity community. Um, and then the ultimate goal was, you know, how can we take all this knowledge and look at targets within ourselves? But, you know, the, there was two main things that really bothered me um, in, in the world of pharma or drug development. Okay. The first was how long it takes. So, you know, going from where I was in a lab, looking at the latest cutting edge science to then actually getting that science out to people that will actually benefit from it you're looking at at least 10 years, more like 15. Right. So that was just, oh, you know, you see this really amazing science and think this isn't going to get to anyone anytime soon. The second thing that really bothered me um, was part of my job. We would send a load of molecules for screening in the labs. We'd then get the data back. And we'd literally, you know, have a list of uh, these molecules work exceptionally well to at the bottom of the list, these just don't work at all and everything in between. And part of my role was I had to look at which molecules were patentable. So which molecules could the drug company own? And therefore they would be the ones that they would take forward into development. And what I'd often see was that the things that worked really, really, really well were not drug molecules. They were yeah. things that were naturally found in foods. They were things that were approved as supplements. They were, they were not what a company could patent and take forward. So these things would just sort of get pushed to one side. And then the things that would go into development were, you know, half as good. And it was like, wow, they're actually going to put all this money into developing something that just works half as well. So I get it commercially, but ethically, I was like, this is crazy because wow. I just saw that time and time again. So it's just ridiculously interesting. <laughs> I want to just yeah. take a minute and say that is so interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, were there any drugs in the pipeline that we might we might have heard about? Um, but I think you've answered that. I'm sure that anything that you guys have discovered so far is still sort of hanging around in the lab going many, 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 many hoops and not even close to being ready for prime time. Is that is that true? Exactly that. So yeah. there was a situation that I could see where it was like we have amazing science that could benefit people. And we have molecules that can do this, that are yeah. already known to be safe and well yeah. tolerated and have you know hundreds of millions of exposures because <laughs> they're in yeah. our food and things like that. And they're just not getting the research that they deserve. So I decided that I was gonna leave that world. So I left in 2017 and I decided to found Nichido Laboratories. And my whole mission was how do we do something with those molecules? How do we get them 
the research and you know all of the evidence base and the testing that they actually deserve um but I'm sure you can imagine what people said you know they thought I was crazy when I was leaving my really credible job in drug development to start a supplement company (laughs) yeah oh my god that must that had to be pretty hard was it yeah was it it? I you had some good support behind you I hope but yeah that's I I can only imagine the kind of yeah because obviously, you know, supplements have a bad name. Um, you know, a lot, there, there's a lot of things out there that don't work as advertised and don't have much science behind them. But, you know, from my perspective, I was like, the way that you identify molecules is exactly the same, whether you're looking for a drug or something yes. that's not a drug. And yes. actually you know, our bodies have no idea what a heck a drug is or a supplement or a nutrient. Like our body doesn't go, oh, that's a drug. So it must work. <laughs> um, and that's a nutrient. So it can't possibly do anything. Um, you know, our bodies have no idea. They all have an equally, you know, strong physiological effect. It's just that I wanted to bring the more credible side of testing and you know the scientific credibility out of dr- the drugs world but bring it into the supplements world very interesting you know we saw this a lot in or the the, the covid the fervent covid research happening where um there was a lot of exploration in molecules that might be effective before we had any grip on how to address this this virus um, and and as often as not, we they were, they were all coming out in preprint at the time. But as often as not, it was a natural product that mm-hmm. appeared to be as potent or more so, um, you know, than some of the, uh, you know, some of the drug molecules that they were exploring for for efficacy with COVID. So very very interesting. So you t- you you took this huge risk in leaving a credible, probably you know, an interesting pr- career. I think you've explained it well, and it'll be interesting to a lot of our listeners, you know, that you were seeing all these molecules that were fabulous. It's kind of cool to get a behind the scenes look from um, from a scientist who's there, you know, that and these are natural molecules. So let's just sweep them off to the side. And I could see that that would be an ethical tug for, for a lot of us listening. Um, so you decided to make this leap. And, you know, what molecules grabbed you? And, you know, let's kind of move over to to talking about about that stage in your career and, and, you know, what, what you've decided to focus on. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, one thing I did learn, uh, from drug development, um, was that again, I was, I was fortunate to work for a very forward thinking company that was investigating new drug development techniques. Um, and, you know, they specialize in something called systems pharmacology, So conventional drug development um, basically will go, okay, we have a disease, we have a gene or a protein or an enzyme or something that goes wrong, and we'll just get a drug and we'll stick it to that particular pathway or protein or whatever, and that'll fix it. (laughs) And as we know, nine times out of 10, it doesn't because biology is incredibly complex. And often there's not just one thing that's going on. And also molecules and drugs don't stick to just one thing in the body. They have footprints and they affect many different things. So I specialized in something called systems pharmacology, which actually was a a more advanced um, discovery technique that took into account all of this. So it was basically, it, it addressed the fact that there was complexity it addressed the fact that if you're going to have any real physiological effect in the body, that probably just doing one thing or looking at one target or one molecule 
probably wasn't going to cut it. And if you want to have real efficacy and real impact, then the best way is actually to look at multiple targets at the same time um, and use combinations of different molecules um, at the same time. Um, and there you would get a much bigger effect. And the hit rate using that approach was way higher. So, you know, not only did I want to look at how can we bring some of these, you know, more natural molecules out of that world and, and test them, but actually is the way that you could be putting combinations of different molecules together. So they actually work in a slightly different way or they're synergistic um, and have a more powerful effect. Um, so, so a huge part of, of what we focused on at Natura Laboratories was, um, you know, how are we going to take some area of aging science how are we going to understand the physiology and then how are we going to take combinations and molecules you know use that systems approach to identify potent combinations and molecules that will then be regulated and approved as a supplement so we can get it out to people very quickly um, rather than waiting 10 to 15 years and one of the first things that i really wanted to look at was nad because this had, you know, back in, in 2017, had become a lot more popular. It was, there was a lot more people talking about NAD within the aging space. And, you know, for me, looking at all the research behind it, there was good promise. Um, you know, we had it, we now had a good idea of what was the underlying physiology surrounding it. Um, so I really wanted to look at developing our first product as an NAD booster, but that worked better than the ones that were already out there. Awesome. So, and, and you had some, did you have some kind of a notion um, on the, on the natural products you were going to, you know, really hone in on? I mean, you must've. At the time, no, it was actually wow. the, the targets. So wow. we knew what targets that we were going to be looking at based on, you know, the latest science around NAD. Um, I mean, would it be helpful to do a, a bit of an NAD 101? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure yeah, yeah. everyone's familiar yes. with it, but, you know, so we, we know the reason, um, you know, NAD, it's just an incredibly important molecule in the body. And anyone that's done any sort of um, biology or medical training will have heard of it um, because it's important for over 300 different reactions in the body as a, a coenzyme substrate. And I just want to underscore that we're using NAD in different structures, like all of the time, you know, yeah. I think in literally every, every cell, if I'm not mistaken, it's just it's, a, a, it's every cell. And I, I quite often say it's probably, if you haven't heard of NAD, it will be the most important molecule that you've never heard of, because if you didn't have it, you would literally be dead in 30 seconds. It's that critical for our physiology. And it's most famous for its role in energy production. So in the Krebs cycle, which occurs in our mitochondria, which literally takes the food that we eat and converts it into ATP, which is the energy that all our cells need to survive and do all of their functions. Um, so incredibly important for that. The other thing that it's been more becoming more famous for now is its role in cellular maintenance and repair. So NAD is now known to basically act as a bit of a signaling molecule in the cell. Um, where it tells the cell to switch on and off maintenance and repair pathways such as DNA repair enzymes. Um, 
the, the, the things that are going to make sure our cells stay in good health. So as a general rule of thumb, if you have high levels of NAD, you have good levels of energy production and good levels of cellular maintenance and repair. And if you have low NAD, energy goes down, maintenance and repair goes down. So the one, the main reason why NAD can seem to regulate all these different functions is that it works in tandem with a group of proteins known as the sirtuins. Um, some people might have heard them referred to as longevity proteins. And this is because these, these sirtuins are known to actually switch on a whole host of downstream pathways and processes that are beneficial for cellular health. So that switch on recycling, switch on repair, switch on DNA repair. Um, the sirtuins basically switch all of these things on. And the link with NAD is that they are absolutely critically dependent on NAD. So NAD basically acts as a fuel to power the sirtuins. So without NAD, they don't work. What's so, interesting yeah. about that, just to kind of link it back to aging is, I mean, you're going to do it anyway, but just off the top of my head, there was a, a paper that we've been interested in, in my um, group, the most recent Hallmarks of Aging paper. So this is, this is teasing out all the mechanisms that really seem mm -hmm. to drive aging. And um, NAD seems to have a finger in in a lot of them. So they've expanded to 12 hallmarks. I think that originally there were nine and this group has just recently expanded them, but NAD is right, is right in the middle. Yeah, it is. It's, and that is one of the reasons why I, I chose, you know, of all the things we could have chose out the, well, at the time there was nine hallmarks of age and now there's obviously 12. Um, you know, we have done a lot of research in areas like senescence, but for me, yeah. NAD, it was something that just seemed, everything seemed to come back to NAD. You know, if it was an NAD decline, it was linked to some of the hallmarks being established. If you restored NAD, it seemed to get rid of some of the hallmarks of aging. So it's it's very intertwined. And I guess it's not surprising because it's in every cell. It performs so many different functions that, you know, it's it's unsurprising that it's it's going to impact multiple hallmarks. But yeah, the reason that NAD is linked to aging is because it's been found to decline exponentially in our cells as we get older. Why? Um, though? Why? Why yeah. does it drop like a, a tank? Yeah. So, well, it's estimated actually to drop by about 50% every 20 years. Um, and that's from birth. In the tissues that have been studied, that's okay. actually from birth. So, what? you know, you can see that even by the time you're 20, you, it's halved then that halves again, then that halves again. So by the time we're in more advanced ages, you know, there's, there's really um, not very much NAD left in our cells at all, which is pretty scary because it's so important to think that this molecule that we really rely on is becoming critically low. Um, and for a long time, people didn't really understand what was happening to NAD. They didn't really understand the underlying mechanisms that were causing NAD decline. Um, but it is now become well-established what is causing this. But I think, first of all, a key thing to point out is that our cells are actually really good at making their own NAD. So when we're young, all of our NAD is actually just produced internally. So I think a lot of people think it comes from our diet or it comes from, you know, some external source, but it doesn't. Um, in, in young youthful cells, we actually have um, a, a pathway called the salvage pathway. 
And what this does is it basically recycles NAD continuously. So when NAD is used by cellular processes, such as the DNA repair enzymes or the sirtuins, they actually split it apart back down into some of its building blocks. And one of these building blocks is nicotinamide, um, you know, vitamin B3. Um, this nicotinamide is then actually recycled back into fresh NAD again. Um, and that makes sense because NAD is so critically important that our cells almost have to have this fail-safe way um, to, to have a continuous supply. We wouldn't really want to rely on it coming from our diet, for example. So that's how it's produced in young cells. But we now know that the main reason why it's declining is actually this process becomes dysfunctional as we get mm. older. So we start me, to see, sorry, yeah. Me, I'm gonna just, I wanna ask, I wanna ask you a question about that process, but I just wanna say we had a, an, an interruption from my my five-year-old, my newly minted five-year-old, she just turned five and she's an insane bundle of energy, right? Like kids, yeah. you can see them, you can see NAD just busting out of the seams. Like it's it's interesting to think about it. And the, the more exhausted she gets, the more energy she gets, which is such a paradox, but it's funny that, likely NAD is playing a big role in that and by the oh, yeah. time she's 20 it's you know it's gonna she's gonna have a very different and she's still gonna have a lot of energy but it'll be different so it's fascinating for me to think about that pearl that you just gave about NAD being so high at birth and then halving and halving and halving over time why is the salvage pathway breaking down so yeah so what we see is that there's a there's a key enzyme within the salvage pathway. It's, it's called, it's got a very long name, but we abbreviate it to NAMPT. So this NAMPT enzyme is what we would describe as a rate limiting enzyme. So out of the whole pathway, it's the really, really critical one, which its levels of activity are directly correlated to the amount of NAD that will be produced. And what we see in older cells is that NAMPT starts to get turned down. So this means that the key enzyme that's powering this recycling pathway just starts to get go down with age. So it means our cells just simply can't make and recycle as much NAD as they did when they were young. So that's one key reason. But what we also now know is that the demand for NAD in older cells actually goes up as well. So right at a time when um, your cells actually need more NAD, you actually see a reduction in the, the, the ability of the cell to make it. And this causes a lot of other downstream knock-on effects because what happens is, for example, we have a lot of inflammatory processes in older cells. Uh, there's a, a really famous one called CD38. It's an enzyme that seems to become upregulated with chronic low-grade inflammation as we get older. Now, CD38 just eats up NAD. It like uses so much of it. And when it uses NAD, it gets broken down. And this is broken down into nicotinamide. Now, in young cells, this nicotinamide would just be flipped straight back into NAD again via the salvage pathway but we know that enzyme isn't working as efficiently. Therefore, what happens in the cells is that older cells start to build up this nicotinamide because it's not getting recycled. And then the cells like, oh my goodness, like we need to maintain homeostasis. We don't like it when things build up. How do we get rid of it? 
And what it does is it increases expression of another enzyme called NNMT, which huh. is a key methylation enzyme. And this enzyme sticks a methyl group on nicotinamide to signal its excretion from the cell. And then what you see is then further dysregulation because you start getting methyl donor depletion because it's all being used up trying to get rid of this nicotinamide. And then you don't have the methyl groups to be involved in other critical processes like epigenetics. So you can quickly see in older cells how you're having all of, you know, you've got lack of recycling, you've got increased demand for NAD, you've got inflammatory processes using up NAD. Suddenly this is, everything's going out of whack. And, you know, one negative thing leads to another. And then it's, you know, it's like the perfect storm for major NAD depletion. So I think the key takeaway is it's complicated. As with anything in biology, NAD biology is complex. And the reason it declines is complex. There's not just one thing causing it. There's multiple different things going on that cause the decline. All right. And and I know we're going to, this is going to, a lot of people are going to immediately be thinking about then, you know, maybe B3 actually becomes sort of toxic, like, like to take. And I, and, and you, I think you're going to address that in a little while, but, you know, we, uh, we prescribe nicotinamide in, in, in practice. We describe, you know, we prescribe niacin, like a whole variety of those things. And if it can't be activated, then that may be a contraindication for use. And if it's not only not activated, but then it's methylated so that it can be eliminated, that could be another contraindication. I, my area of research has been in, in DNA methylation. And so we're, we're always thinking about uh, ways that we can prever, pre- preserve it. But, and, I, and you're gonna talk about that, but before you jump into that, I just wanted to ask you, this is a little bit of a, of a wild card question, but it, it's, I, I'm curious if you have anything to say about um, when we, we see this, you know, the breakdown of the salvage pathway, the demand for for it, the increased need as we age. So we need more NAD as we age, but we can't recycle it. It ends up accumulating. It's getting sucked up by CD38. And um, it's almost like aging looks almost like this program phenomena sometimes like on purpose we're just breaking we're just putting the body into dire straits so that it's vulnerable to as you pointed out earlier all the chronic diseases associated with like all the big diseases are all associated with aging and it it's it's it it seems it seems like there's some sort of a program phenomena that's potentially occurring and do you have any thoughts on that or do you want to just kick that down (laughs) yeah well it's a hugely controversial area in the the world of longevity is aging programs or not I think my take on it is is that aging only ever makes sense when you think of it in terms of evolution so you know we've evolved to live to a particular age um, yeah. You know, we, we, we have evolved to live not long past childbearing age. So every process that we have in our cell is, is basically trying to protect us until we get to that point. Um, and we've almost fulfilled our purpose and then off we go. Um, so, you know, why, why would evolution ever, you know, give us cellular abilities to live beyond that, to, to reach an age that we were never likely to naturally live? 
Um, and this is why you have processes like senescence, which are highly beneficial when we're young because they forget they, they prevent us from getting cancer. But then as we get older, they become hugely problematic. But in the reality, when evolution designed that process, we were never supposed to live until our 80s and these cells weren't supposed to accumulate. So with aging, I always, you know, say, if you're trying to explain anything in aging, just think of it from evolution's <laughs> kind yeah. of point of view um but yeah. you know everything is so complex when you look at the hallmarks of aging they're all highly interconnected you know you can yeah. never look at anything in isolation and this is the beauty of systems pharmacology it really acknowledges that and and doesn't ignore it which unfortunately you know a lot of scientists tend to have a bit of a reductionist approach where they're very focused on very particular areas of biology yeah. and and fail to see the bigger picture of how their particular interesting area maybe impact impacting something that they've never thought about before um yeah. so yeah it's great it's just really cool that you're that that you have studied and and work in that systems model it's it's just really refreshing and and, and indeed i've interviewed um people who are focused on single molecule activity and controlled activity and yeah it, miss, it just misses so 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 much um all right and so that was that was a fun little tour through the importance of NAD and what happens as we age. Um, anything you want to add there, or do you want to circle back and and start talking about, you know, is there an issue with taking prescribing, you know, nicotinamide or some of the you know the precursors like nicotinamide riboside or or um, yeah. NMN? I think. A lot of people, well, I think, first of all, you know, going back through the sort of science of NAD, scientists seen this molecule, it's incredibly important. Um, it's It declines with age. So why don't we just stop it declining with age? And if we did stop it declining with age, then would all of these important cellular processes remain switched on? Um, would we improve health span? Like how, how would it improve, you know, all, all the things that are associated with NAD decline. Um, so scientists began to do things in cells and animals than humans that would boost in NAD. Um, and lo and behold, found that if you maintained NAD or topped it back up, um, that you had a whole host of, of benefits. Um, you know, obviously everything from increased mitochondrial function, energy production, physical energy, cognitive energy, reduction in um, neurodegenerative diseases, um, muscle, everything. It was like NAD seemed to just be, you know, this magic molecule that, that was that was addressing a lot of different issues when it came to aging. And again, it's like, it almost sounds too good to be true, but when you think about it, it's in every cell, it declines. It, it has all of these beneficial processes that if they're getting switched off is not good for cellular health. So, you know, it's no surprise that the benefits are so vast. Um, but so people, mostly in animals though, right? In animals, but, yeah. worms, you know, mice and mice and worms, I think, but yeah. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the early, early studies would have been your, your classic um, model organisms like your C. elegans, worms, your Drosophila, et cetera. Then it was, it was the, the mammals. And then more recently it, it's been the human studies. Um, but there was a lot of, you know, how can we boost NAD? Um, and it's known that NAD is quite a large and stable molecule. So the idea of just taking NAD as an oral pill was immediately you know, wiped, wiped off the table. It's, it's not possible. And um, so the next sort of best idea was, well, what, 
why don't we use precursors to NAD? So like the raw material, the building blocks that, that our body uses to make NAD, why don't we take that? Can you, Nicola, just speak to why NAD was wiped off the table? Just just say that again. I didn't quite grab it, and I'm I'm guessing some other people. Like, why why was it kicked out? Yeah. So so NAD by its very nature is an unstable molecule. Okay. So it's what we call a redox molecule, which means it flips between different states. So it loses and gains electrons and hydrogen all the time, um, and it flips really easily between these states. And that basically means that it, it's it's just very, very unstable. Um, so if you try and put it in a pill or put it through your digestive system, it, it just gets degraded. Okay. The other thing is, let's say hypothetically, um, it, it did get intact into your body. Um, actually, it's a big molecule and it's too big and um, charged to actually fit through our cell membranes. Um, so there are not many cells in our body that have a transport protein that will actively intake it into the cells. Um, so yes, you, you know, you could take NAD, but most of it would have to be broken down and then transported through as the precursors anyway. Um, so they're the main reasons why NAD in a pill, you know, an oral pill was, was just not a practical solution. So the next um, best thing was let's use um, the precursors, the raw materials. So these are what NAD is naturally made up of anyway. Um, these are things like um, your niacin, your nicotinamide, your nicotinamide riboside or NR, it's commonly known as, and your nicotinamide mononucleotide or NMN. Um, the most popular ones seem to be NR and NMN. Um, and again, these are just precursors to NAD. They're the building blocks that our bodies use to make NAD. So the idea was if we give the body and the cells more of the raw material, hopefully the body will convert it into NAD. Um, and at the time it was so brilliant, you know, you can see it, it boosts NAD um, and it, it's doing the job. But then this was in cells and model organisms. Then, you know, when it started moving through into humans, in the human clinical trials, there, there wasn't that, amazing results with the likes of NR. Um, and it was a bit puzzling. It's like, why have we had all this, you know, extending the lifespan of cells and health span and everything, and, and we're not really getting the effects translated into humans. So I think since those, you know, those, the idea of using precursors came out, the science has obviously moved and we now understand why NAD declines, um, as I've just explained the reasons. So in light of all of that, if you think now about what happens when you take a precursor such as NR or NMN, what we know is that it enters the salvage pathway. It actually enters lower than the rate limiting enzyme. So it does actually get converted into NAD, which is why in the studies you do see an NAD boost. But as soon as that NAD is being used at once via the sirtuins or the DNA repair or CD38 or whatever it is, it's broken down into nicotinamide. And then you've got the roadblock because if they're older cells, then that nicotinamide and that pathway that's recycling it is not as functional as it should be. So essentially, yes, you're getting NAD, it's getting used once, but then you're getting a buildup of nicotinamide. And then you've got the problem of, oh my goodness, we've got to get rid of this nicotinamide. So the methyl donors start coming out, tagging, 
tagging the um, nicotinamide and excreting it. And this is why you'll see um, a lot of people talking about the fact that you should be taking methyl donors like um, you know, trimethylglycine, um, uh, choline, et cetera, um, when you are taking NR or NMN because you can suffer from methyl donor depletion. Let me ask you um, a question too also. Yeah. So you've got this accumulation, this intercellular accumulation of nicotinamide. Does that have any feedback inhibition on the salvage pathway? So this, so this salvage pathway that's already limping along as we age, is it further inhibited, inhibited or, I mean, is so there-, there is- there's there's always a worry that nicotinamide can inhibit key things like the sirtuins. So you know, some something that I always get asked is, oh my, you know, would you, why would you take nicotinamide because it inhibits the sirtuins? However, if you look at the data, actually in cells at ridiculously high concentrations that physiologically would never be possible, yes, it inhibits sirtuins. But in a physiological system, it, it doesn't inhibit sirtuins. It actually activates them via its role with NAD. Um, so that's a bit of a myth that everybody seems to get a bit lost in, that it's it's an inhibitor. Um, and again, this is because our bodies will do everything that they can to not let it get up to the concentrations where it becomes an inhibitor. So that's when you start seeing upregulation of NMMT to get rid of it. Um, so in some of the studies that have been the human studies that have been done with NR, um, if you look at the data, what you will see is that as they increase the concentration of NR that they're given to the subjects, you can see a huge increase in the levels of methyl nicotinamide that are excreted in the urine. Because again, that is not getting converted into NAD. You know, it's not getting going around the salvage pathway. The body's suddenly having to upregulate a process of excretion because it simply can't deal with the amount that's coming in. So again, you're not addressing the root causes of the NAD decline. And by not doing that, you're actually causing another problem. Another thing to kind of think about and acknowledge, which is now people are now thinking about more, is, is that NAD that you're topping up actually going to the right place where you want it to be going because we want it to be activating the sirtuins. We want it to be activating the DNA repair enzymes. However, we know in older cells, they have increased expression of CD38 and CD38 has a much higher affinity for NAD than either the sirtuins or the DNA repair enzymes. So in a cell, What that means is that if CD38 is there enough, it's going to grab all of the NAD before any of the beneficial pathways actually have a chance to use it. So again, you could be thinking that by taking NMN or NR, you know, you're actually boosting NAD and it's good because it's going to activate the sirtuins and repair, but actually all that NAD you're putting in is actually driving inflammation. Um, if you don't look at addressing that other root cause of NAD decline. That's so, really interesting. Where, yeah, are, where, what cell type seems to house CD38? I mean, it, like- a lot of the immune cells, um, but you know, it's, it's one of those that seems to have a bit more of a ubiquitous expression. Right. Um, but for us, you know, this is, a, this is, this is why, you know, we talk about maybe second generation NAD boosting back then. 
we didn't understand all that. It was thought yeah. that, you know, using NR or NMN was the best way to approach the problem. We now know that actually it doesn't address the root causes and it's potentially making some of the issues worse. Um, so what we wanted to do was go, okay, we now know we've got an issue with NAMPT in the salvage pathway. We know that we have an issue with CD38. We know that we have an issue with methylation. What can we design in targets with system pharmacology, that's going to target all of those different things and actually address the root causes of the decline rather than ignoring them um, and address the complexity. So that's how we designed our formulation and our product to actually fix those issues. So let's talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> what you figured out and how you put together this systems approach to dealing with that and what you found in your research. Let's, let's yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, well, you know, obviously from what we've discussed, one of our, our main targets that we wanted to affect was the salvage pathway. We know it's a, late, a leading cause of NAD decline. We know it's that key enzyme, NAMPT, that declines. So we wanted to boost levels of it. So for that, we basically used two different ingredients to do it that act on slightly different pathways. So um, rutin. Um, it, it's derived from something called Sephora japonica and um, it has a high amount of natural quercetin in it. We know that that is an NAMPT activator. So that is a direct activator. The other ingredient is alpha lipoic acid. And this activates NAMPT, but via a slightly different pathway. So what alpha lipoic acid does is it actually activates an energy sensor in the cell called AMPK. And what AMPK does is it signals if the cell's in a bit of energy stress. And if it is in energy stress, what it does is it goes, oh, we need to switch on NAD production. So it sets off a series of reactions that basically lead to increased levels of NAMPT to increase NAD in the cell. And AMP, um, alpha lipoic acid actually activates AMPK. And the really interesting thing about that is it's that this exact pathway is activated by both exercise, calorie restriction, fasting, all things that are shown to promote cellular health and health span and lifespan in some cases. Um, and it's known that a lot of the beneficial effects of these things are by increased NAD production. Because again, if you think about it, the reason our, our bodies are increasing NAD is that they've sensed this energy stress from the exercise or the fasting. Our body's setting off a reaction saying, we need to survive this stress. How do we do it? We increase NAD. Uh, we tell us, give the mitochondria more NAD to keep producing its own energy. Uh, we have NAD as a signal molecule to increase maintenance and repair and recycling so that we can get the cells through this period of no nutrients and energy stress. Um, so yeah, that's that's a natural way of, of boosting levels of that enzyme, but obviously we're using a molecule to actually do that. And Very interesting. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. ALA is a really interesting one. So, you know, it's something that you do come across frequently in the in the longevity space um, as a, you know, a, an antioxidant as well. Um, and you've got to be really careful with ALA because um, in, in terms of what, what form that you use. So there's two different isomers. You've got an R and an S version. 
Um, and quite often, if you look in products, they'll have the S, which is like the synthetic. And when you look at all the data, that does absolutely nothing in the body. It doesn't work at all. Um, at best, you'll get a 50-50 mix of R and S forms. Um, so again, you're kind of paying for half of it. That doesn't do anything. So I was really keen with our product that we only use R ALA. So it's only the form that we know actually works. Um, and ALA is, is, you know, it's one of these molecules that acts on many different pathways in the body. And a, another way that we know that it increases NAD is it actually activates a pathway or an enzyme called NQ01. Um, and NQ01, um, what that does is it converts NADH to NAD+. So remember earlier I said NAD is a redox molecule. Um, well, NADH um, and NAD plus are the reduced and the oxidized forms, and it flips between those constantly. But what you tend to find is that in older cells, it favors more towards NADH, and that's not good. You want it more towards NAD plus. So what this enzyme does is it basically flips NADH to NAD plus. So you rebalance um, the, the more favorable ratio of NAD plus to NADH. So ALA acts as kind of a dual purpose. The other thing, again, that we wanted to fix was, um, you know, if we've switched back on this NAMPT enzyme, so we know that the recycling pathway should be fully functional, like a young cell, then what we want to do is prevent that methylation because we want any nicotinamide to be getting promoted towards the recycling pathway rather than methylation and excretion. Sure. But we know in older cells, they, they've started to express more of this enzyme NNMT that methylates. So we use a green tea leaf extract, which has a high concentration of a molecule, which I'm sure you'll know, EGCG, um, and that is known to inhibit that enzyme. So what we want to do there is push the nicotinamide towards recycling rather than excretion. And the other interesting molecule that we use is parsley which again, everyone's like parsley, like why? Um, but the reason we use parsley is because it's got a very high concentration of an active molecule that continuously came up in drug development called apigenin. Um, and um, people in the longevity world will probably know apigenin as a senolytic molecule. Um, but for us, um, what we're using it as is to inhibit CD38 because it's been shown that even just inhibiting CD38 a tiny bit, you can have a huge impact on cellular NAD levels because it wastes so much NAD. So again, all things that are just trying to restore the balance of the cell back to like a youthful profile, like what it was doing when it was younger, because at the end of the day, our cells are very good at making and recycling NAD when they're younger. It just all goes a bit, <laughs> a bit out of whack. So um, so yeah, so that's, we also have nicotinamide in there as a precursor um, alongside these ingredients. And lots of people say, well, why would you not use NR or NMN? And the reason is because NR and NMN cannot freely diffuse through cell membranes. So again, they rely on transport proteins to actively take them into the cells. So they will only go in cells that have those transporter proteins, whereas nicotinamide is, uh, you know, it's uncharged. It freely diffuses through all cell membranes. And also we know because of the salvage pathway that it's the body's preferred precursor for NAD synthesis. Fascinating. So we have but that you want in it, 
but you're giving it in combination with all of these nutrients to help stimulate you know the various pathways so it's not just hanging around accumulating exactly so we would yeah. always say we would never give a precursor alone especially in an older cell like right. you know when you're trying to boost NAD you really need to be given a precursor in combination with the other things to make sure that the precursor is going the way yeah. you want it to go and the NADs being used in that way so yeah, that, so, you know, back when I started the company, this is all the research we did. And then we were like, right, well, we've got to test it. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I was like, no, this, this, whatever we do, it has to be very well scientifically thought out, but also proven and tested, which is the key part that's missing with a lot of supplements. A lot of supplements make a lot of claims, but don't have any evidence in humans to back it up. And the benefit of using molecules that are known and tolerated and GRAS recognized is that you can put them into humans. Um, you know, you don't have to go yeah. through the really long drug development routes. So we initially did a pilot study and it was just with two human volunteers, but we wanted to check, is it increasing NAD? Is it acting on the pathways that we wanted it to activate? Um, and we confirmed this. So that was back in 2019. Um, and then I was like, okay, so we know we have a formulation that works. Um, it's stable. Let's do a bigger clinical trial. So we started a double-blinded placebo-controlled crossover study, um, which in you know the world of trials is a gold standard trial in terms of design. Um, we had 20, 28 people enrolled. Um, the, 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 the people that we were enrolled were between age 20 to 80, and they were also male and female, um, which is really unusual because obviously a lot of clinical trials, you have to only use a very specific age group and usually men just to try and eliminate any other factors. But for me, I was like, I want this trial to be as representative as the real world, because this supplement is going to go into the real world. So we need to know it works in a normal population of people. Um, so we basically um, started that trial. Then obviously COVID hit. <laughs> um, so we had to stop it. Uh, we started, so we were, we wanted the, the data out for this, you know, years ago. Um, but we've, we've actually now just finished and it's unblinded. Um, and what we measured in this study was, first of all, we, again, we wanted to see what's it doing to NAD. Um, so we found it did significantly increase NAD, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, um, right. <laughs> yeah, we then looked at NAMPT. And again, in all of these volunteers, we saw that NAMPT um, protein was upregulated. You know, it went from barely detectable to actually being detectable in the cells of these people. Um, we looked at the sirtuins and saw that the again the cert one um, the most probably the most famous sirtuin when it comes to longevity was um, it had significantly increased expression as well. We then wanted to look at okay so we know the NAD has gone up we know the mechanism of action like what are some biomarkers of aging that should be changing. So one of them that we looked at was levels of inflammation. Um, because, you know, we know that chronic low-grade inflammation is, is associated with aging. We know that if we're inhibiting CD38, we should be reducing inflammatory factors. Um, let's see what happens. So we found a significant reduction in, in four different inflammatory cytokines. Um, and then um, obviously that, you know, is a, is a, is one inflammation. Chronic inflammation is one of the new hallmarks of aging. 
Um, so for us, that was exciting. And, you know, inflammation is also something that can be measured in a clinic, unlike sirtuins or <laughs> NAMPT, um, which I think is important. Um, we also looked at levels of glycation. Um, so glycation is, you know, when sugar molecules start to become stuck to proteins in the cells irreversibly, um, it leads to a lot of problems like stiffening of the arteries, the skin, and, um, it, you know, it, it's a good biomarker of aging as well. And again, we saw a significant reduction in glycation. Um, what else do we measure? Going <laughs> uh, to biological age. Something oh, yeah. We talk about a lot in minor detail. Yeah. How can how I forget look, that? How, how did you look at biological age? So, biological age was something we put in there because, again, this is a consumer product. This is, you know, something that we want people to be able to understand. And we think looking at biological age is a really easy way of understanding something scientific. It's a number. You want it to go backwards. You don't want it to be higher than you know your chronological age. And that's kind of all you need to know. So we actually looked at, at glycan age. So we didn't do epigenetic markers. We looked at glycan age. And so everybody that was at a trial um, did the glycan age test um, before and after each arm of the, the study. Um, and again, we found a significant trend towards um, a reduction in biological age after only a month of taking the study. It was about 1.26 years decrease. Um, so I think we, we want to look at that in larger populations of people um, now, but, you know, for us, it's, it's a good start. It's a lot more, um, you know, we want to do a longer study that's, you know, more than a month. Um, but to see all of those parameters changing, um, you know, in just 28 days for us, we were, you know, really pleased that it's something, you know, it's something that is available. It's not a drug. Um, um, but it actually could have some significant benefit, um, and it's got data to support it. And I know this is finished the peer review process and it's heading towards publication shortly. Um, we'll, yes. we will, um, we're going to link to all your papers and any sort of primers that you want the audience to have access to. We'll put them in our show notes. Um, this is going to be a great paper to check out. I can't wait. Congratulations. Yeah, really. Congratulations on all that. You you know, you put together something that's, that's moving the needle. Thank you. No, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> um, you know, naively when you start, you think, oh, how hard can it be? You know, it's not a drug. <laughs> it can't be any worse than a drug, but all the things you have to jump through and then, yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the team um, and what, what we've achieved and, you know, managed to fulfill our mission of taking something from a lab and getting it into the hands of an everyday person, uh, you know, and being accessible um, and, you know, being able to benefit people. I would love to look at how this influences DNA methylation and, you know, gene expression through an epigenetic um, lens, because, you know, it's, your, your product is packed with, with what we call epinutrients, you know, that have yeah. evidence in the literature for influencing specifically DNA methylation. Not just that, you know, the enzyme, as you mentioned earlier, but, um, you know, and I've really come to appreciate the combination of nutrients like you would get in food. You know, it's that combination of information, you know, given at a single time that really seems to direct the symphony of information, if you will, to optimize cellular function. So I, I, I appreciate your product design quite a bit. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, some of the, the forms that we put the ingredients in, so like using rutin rather than quercetin and parsley for the epigenin, yeah. 
um, you know, the, in those forms that you can have like the glycosides and they're protected slightly going through the gut and, you know, they get clean. Um, so, so my PhD was actually all in bioavailability. Um, so I was always incredibly passionate about putting things in, in, in the form that they're most likely to get absorbed and in the amounts that you need to get the oral bioavailability. Um, so yeah, sometimes people say, well, what, you know, why wouldn't you just use apigenin or just use quercetin? Why is it in different forms? But, you know, again, there's, there's a well thought out reason for that as well. Another pearl. <laughs> I'm glad that you wrote <laughs> that in. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it caught me earlier when you had mentioned it, the, the, the root in, you know, for quercetin, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for fleshing that out. That's really fascinating. What about like, you know, you had NAD, I know actually a lot of my colleagues are offering NAD IV infusions in practice or they're getting them themselves. I mean, it's just another um, huge route of delivery. And Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think I really wish there were more studies on NAD IVs to, you know, clinically show what's happening when people are having them. I think there's a real lack of, of data and studies out there, but we know mostly anecdotally that people do report a big benefit from them, especially in areas of like um, cognitive decline and um, addiction and things like that. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, NAD is a big molecule. We know that it doesn't get into every cell. We know there are certain cells it can be actively transported into like neurons, heart cells. Um, so I think in those cells, when NAD does go into them, you've kind of got a, a little bit of a similar problem as what you have with the precursors because in older cells or cells that have some sort of dysfunction, that means that their salvage pathway is not working properly or they've got more inflammation or things like that. Again, you're delivering like a huge hit of NAD and that NAD is going to get like a first pass, if you want to call it that. It's going to get broken down and used. And then you've got this massive influx of nicotinamide that the body suddenly has to deal with. So again, um, you know, some people report when they have these IVs that they feel a bit sick and they have palpitations. And I think a lot of that probably is this big influx of nicotinamide that the body's suddenly trying to methylate and upregulate and excrete and deal with it. Um, so actually what we've started working with it with a couple of our practitioners that we work with who do IVs is saying, you know what, theoretically, if you combine our product with an IV and, you know, give the product for a month before you give the IV, um, it's almost priming the cells ready to be in a better situation to be able to deal with that sudden large hit of NAD that it's going to get. Um, you know, because if you think about it, if you're upregulating your salvage pathway, and it means that when you are getting that huge dose of NAD, it gets used, it gets broken down, but again, gets recycled and it can be used again and broken down and recycled as opposed to you have it once and then the cell can't do anything with it and it just gets rid of it. And you've just had a very expensive IV and it's kind of had a, had a one hit and then it's gone. Um, so, you know, we want, we want to do a trial on this, but anecdotal evidence shows that people seem to have a more prolonged benefit when they've almost primed their cells beforehand. Um, and again, theoretically, it all makes sense. We want to test it, but um, anything you can do to make sure your cells are optimally placed to deal with the large dose of NAD is always a good thing. So again, you don't want to be putting a huge NADIV infusion into massively inflamed cells with CD38 that are just going to take all of the NAD 
to the wrong processes, you know, and not the beneficial ones. Um, so that's something we're, we're looking at testing a bit more, but certainly, um, you know, anecdotally, we've had some good feedback from that. Awesome. Yeah, it makes sense mechanistically, and it'll be interesting yeah. to see what you find since, um, you know, since you're looking at it. You had said before, and I just want to kind of underscore it again, that using your product can is almost a fast it could be a fast like a fasting mimetic it's actually upregulating some of some of the pathways that um that fasting does and exercise does as you mentioned earlier um but you might use it concurrently if you're doing a fast or if you're in a time restricted eating structure yeah so what so you know a lot of our customers say you know i practice fasting or time restricted eating and like when should i be taking this so we what we say is take it with your first your first meal because we know that fasting um, is obviously increasing your NAD levels because it's activating AMPK. Then usually when you're eating your first meal, you know that NAD then drops again because that energy stress has been relieved. So by taking the taking like a supplement with those mimetics in that are actually still triggering AMPK, you're actually prolonging the activation of those pathways, even though you've begun to eat. Um, so in that way, effectively, you're prolonging and, you know, the activation of the pathways that you've been activating for the last 16 hours fasting, <laughs> um, yeah. even when you, you start to start to refeed. And certainly there's plenty of people who don't have an appetite, <laughs> no pun intended, for doing any kind of structured food restriction. You know, yeah. it can be it can be really triggering. Um, we see it in our, our, our clinical practice actually with some frequency. So this might be an alternative to getting some of those benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's not for everyone. Um, but we know that, you know, lifestyle ways to boost NAD, it's exercise, it's, you know, it's clinically proven in clinical trials that, you know, weights, lifting weights and doing um, high intensity interval training will boost NAD and calorie restriction, intermittent fasting. But again, not everyone is able to do that or not everyone wants to do that. So um, yeah, this is another way of, of actually activating those pathways. So just in our final, I have one more, one more question for you and then we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, we're wanting to test NAD levels in clinical practice. Um, there's, I think there's kits offered to consumers these days. Uh, how, you know, are these labs ready for prime time? So as of yet, I haven't come across any lab that's been able to offer a, a test that I would say is robust enough. Um, and the reason is, is, you know, we'd love to be able to offer NAD tests and kits to our customers because we know it works and, you know, being able to measure yeah. it yourself just seals the deal. However, NAD, as I mentioned, is incredibly unstable. And that yeah. means that it breaks down really quick. So obviously, if you wanted to just do a blood prick finger prick test and send it off in the post by the time it gets to the lab I can guarantee there will be no NAD left in there and um, you know when we um were doing our testing and our trials etc um we actually did an experiment to look at stability of NAD in blood just you know, at room temperature, then on ice and things like that. And, you know, if you just left it on the bench, it, it pretty much gone in 20 minutes. So when analyzing it in, in the labs, you know, it would be intravenous blood draw, it would be straight on ice, and then it would be straight to be prepped, like immediately to extract the cells and cryopreserve. So you were preserving um, any of that NAD that, that, that was there. 
Um, so I haven't come across a company, although there are companies offering NAD testing, I haven't come across anyone that's convinced me that they found a way to preserve it. Um, yeah. And this is why we went with, you know, a, a, for a consumer kit, a biological age kit, because, you know, there's good data on that. It could be a finger prick blood test. It's, you know, it's stable. It can be sent away. Um, and it's things that customers and, and practitioners can actually do themselves for, for themselves or the patients. Right, right. And also you mentioned, you know, inflammation. We can easily measure it. Yeah, and inflammation. Practice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, um, Dr. Nicole, it's just fabulous to get to talk to you. Really interesting conversation. I'm excited about your new product. I'm excited about the research, the effort, the time, the energy, the 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 money that you're investing into kind of teasing out what it's doing in humans. Um, again, everybody will link to the show notes, all the papers uh, that we covered today, so you have access. And as soon as the human study is out, the most recent one that 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 will be coming out shortly, we'll we'll get that up on the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for coming. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Yeah, no, amazing. I've really enjoyed that chat. So thanks very much for having me. My pleasure.